to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. I am your host, Christine. This episode is being released a little early because of Christmas, so I just want to say Merry Christmas to everyone that is celebrating. I know it already passed, but Happy Hanukkah if you celebrated that. Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Festivus, Happy whatever religious or non-religious thing you celebrated, or Happy Random Day in June to the person that is listening to back episodes in the future. Hi, thank you for listening. I say this every week. But I am really, truly grateful for everyone that is listening to these stories all over the world. Every week, this podcast gets bigger and bigger, and it's truly amazing. So thank you guys so, so much. This podcast has been downloaded in all 50 states and 35 different countries. I think the podcast has international appeal because no matter what country you're in, no matter what language you speak, religion you practice or don't, the idea of helping people who are sick is just universal. We may have vastly different methods of doing it, but the motives are the same and the human interaction is the same. It just seems like there's a lot of really negative things on the news and social media about politics in the world in general, but working every day despite that all over the world are people trying to help other people. And we don't always get to see that. They're they're just going about their jobs. But when you work in medicine, you see these little examples every single day. And even though the stories on this podcast can be really dark and tragic at times, they're about people trying to do the best with the situation in front of them and to alleviate suffering for at least one other person. It's brought me a lot of joy to share this with you. So thank you all so much for listening. I hope everyone has a great holiday. And if you're working, whether you are in a hospital, at a clinic, at a station or deployed somewhere far from home, I hope you get to share some time with your family in any way that you can. All right, for this week's episode, we are going to talk about a type of medicine that is so foreign and so opposite to what I do. It's taken quite a bit of time to even coordinate getting this person to record with me just because of the sheer distance and barriers to internet and phone communication. So all the way from Australia, this is Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Christine. (laughs) (laughs) It is good to finally talk to you. (laughs) Yes, you too. We have tried phone calls. We've tried different times, but you are 15 hours ahead of me. You also don't always have internet connection. I don't always have very good internet connection. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) some of the bandwidth is pretty low that you can't do an awful lot with it. Yeah, so it's been a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to record. Then we tried a phone call and that was just, that was rough. So that was 6 a.m. for me and (laughs) late night for you. And this I think is okay. (laughs) So Tell people about what you do. You are a rural nurse in Australia. So I'm a remote area nurse in Australia. And I suppose the best way to describe it is, in a way, a jack of all trades. So you need to have a little bit of skill and experience in lots of different areas. Where I'm currently working is a place which is about 600 kilometres west of Cairns in far north Queensland. 600 west of the east coast and it's a small remote community of a population of about 200 in town Mm -hmm. and it's a single nurse clinic so there's just me in the the health center and we get a visit from the royal flowing doctor a gp visit every week usually if they get there Um, and there's not been bad weather or something so we get a doctor for five hours a week and otherwise it's um me you say royal flying doctors so they come in on a plane or? Yeah, so the Royal Flying Doctor Service provides not only aeromedical retrieval services, but they also provide clinics, GP clinics. They do some mental health in some areas, child health and maternal health. Wow. These are really obviously remote places that they're going to. How long does it take you to get there when you drive? So I just did the drive yesterday. It took seven hours. And you, you go out there for a week and then you come back. Is that correct? Yeah, now it's just changed. So we kind of drive in, drive out. So uh, we drive out, do seven days on call 24-7 and then hand over on day nine and come home and the other colleagues. So it's always staffed with a nurse on seven, on seven off in the community. Are most communities like this, that they have like rural communities that they have just a nurse all the time, but then occasionally get a doctor? There's not a lot of single nurse clinics in Australia anymore. And The professional organisations are also trying to work really hard towards not having any because of Mm -hmm. the isolation professionally and and personally. 
So there's a yeah. in larger communities, it tends to be not one nurse, but you might have four or five nurses, and they may have doctors visiting for different lengths of time. But there's a lot of communities where yeah, there's no doctors at all, and it's managed by nurses and or health workers, Indigenous health workers. Okay, if someone needed to go to a hospital like larger than your clinic, how how would you go about getting them there? How far away is that? So the nearest hospital, which isn't a major referral centre, the nearest referral centre is here where I'm living in Cairns, so it's 550 kilometres away, or there's some rural hospitals, but they're 480 kilometres away. So if I have a patient that I'm concerned about, I'll call the flying doctors and I'll discuss the case with the doctor and we'll liaison the best way of how to get the patient out. So sometimes it might be that the most efficient way is to get them to drive out or someone drive them out. Okay. But so they may drive themselves or someone might drive them or the plane will come in and pick them up. So we'll keep them in the clinic and manage, stabilize them until the team arrives to collect them and to retrieve them and transport them. So I have so many questions, but I guess first, how did you get into this? What is your background as a nurse? What kind of schooling did you go to? Okay, so uh, I actually trained with one of your other guests that you had on the show, Alison. <laughs> so we um, trained 30 years ago. My background initially, I worked in emergency nursing and then I went back to school. I did um, a grad dip in critical care and I've done a master's in public health and a master's in child health and I'm a midwife. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's what I said, jack of all trades. <laughs> a lot of nurses' hats there, nurses' caps. Yeah, and then I and I was really interested in emergency and aeromedical retrieval. So I actually worked for the Royal Flying Doctor Service also for quite a while. Wow. And in between that too, I've done relief around lots of different remote communities in Queensland in Australia. And also I've done lots of work overseas as well. That's fantastic. What drew you to doing rural medicine? Um, started off just as an interest. You'd heard a few things, you know, read a few things, heard a few stories. So I got a job in an emergency department in a a regional area and then from there um, we serviced lots of remote communities and so I heard a bit more about it and the opportunity came up to do some relief and it kind of sparked my interest from there. Again, because you get to do everything for that, you know, you get to understand the social circumstances, you know really well the situation, you can follow people through, you get that uh, unknown of like, you know, emergencies and things because you can have mm-hmm. motor vehicle crashes, MIs, prem labours, you name it kind of thing, you can see it. And then you also get to do the primary health care and actually really get involved in that with the patient. So it's quite interesting and challenging job. Yeah, I can't even imagine. And it's, that's such a valuable service for the community. So you say you have a clinic. Yes. What does that clinic entail? What kind of skills do you have? Uh, what, what kind of services do you offer at the clinic? What is within the scope there that you can just handle there? Well, we have to deal. So we also have our hospital-based ambulance. So if there's mm-hmm. an emergency call, we'll get tasked. And it's myself and one of our operational officers who have training in first aid um, they'll drive the ambulance and we'll attend the scene and then either arrange for an aeromedical retrieval from the scene with a helicopter or that's quite difficult helicopter with the distance where we are or we'll bring them back to the clinic and stabilize them um, so we've got the emergency response we do child health we do antenatal care postnatal care in remote communities in Queensland when we have antenates, once they reach 36 weeks gestation, they actually mm-hmm. leave the community and go to a regional centre to wait for delivery because we have no delivery facilities. And if there was something to go wrong, backup's a long way away. Yeah. So they all birth out of community. So you are the EMS response for these communities. There are no ambulance services. Is there a fire department? No. Nope. There's a rural fire. Nope. So just local. Uh, local people who have trained up so there's volunteer fire and uh, state emergency service so if I go to for example like a road traffic crash uh, Mm -hmm. the police there's two police in town the police will attend (laughs) and there's two people at the moment who would attend from the emergency services who have some training and equipment to be able to you know help cut the car open or whatever but it's yeah fairly limited resources. Wow and we're jumping around a little bit, but there's just so much to talk about. Going back to labor and delivery, 
you're a midwife, but of course, if anything becomes complicated, you don't want a mom out there with you. How do mothers feel about leaving their homes and their communities to go deliver their child? Uh, it's been, it's quite difficult, especially in some of the more remote communities. Yeah. And, um, and especially, I think, in some of the Indigenous cultures where land is really strong. Mm-hmm. So some patients don't mind some women don't mind going out for delivery some would prefer to stay and there's lots of really active midwives who are are trying to facilitate birthing back out in regional centers but it's sort of quite complex issue so some of the some of the larger centers they're starting to be able to to birth for low-risk women Mm -hmm. the really remote places uh, no one can deliver and have to go to at least a regional centre. Have you ever had anyone refuse to go? Um, yes. <laughs> and sometimes people may go out at 36 weeks and there may be a family issue or something going on because people are so far away from their family. So sometimes people will arrive back in the community and, and leave again and, arro- and come in and out mm-hmm. for whatever their own personal reasons are. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do in that case? I mean, you must still attend to them. Yeah, so I mean if someone goes into, yeah, you still have to treat them and you just have to explain the circumstances and usually then people will do it sometimes, you know, because four weeks before your due date is a long time to be separated from your community and your family and your friends. Yeah, especially first-time mothers, they must be so anxious and just wanting to be around their family and their support network. Yeah, and so even people who maybe aren't that keen to go, once it gets closer to the date, usually they're happy. Sometimes they're just not happy to go for such a long time, which you can understand. Yeah. Well, you were telling me briefly that you also are starting to utilize telemedicine pretty uniquely. Yeah, so most... In Queensland, in Australia, pretty much I think all of the rural and remote facilities now have video conferencing in their recess emergency room. So in the larger centres where there's, there is doctors and nurses but they maybe don't, uh, they're generalist kind of thing, they can still get support from consultants. And for us out in remote areas, we can either get the Royal Flying Doctor service doctor on the video conference and they can see the patient or also the retrieval services uh, specialists and nurses can also get online and support us with delivering the care. Mm-hmm. Um, or it might be that we need some nursing support for something that we haven't done before. And so someone can jump on and just help talk you through it. You must do so many procedures and just do so much hands-on stuff and things that normal nurses would kind of shy away from, or not necessarily shy away from, but just be shocked that you're operating so independently. How do your orders and your standing orders and stuff differ from like a hospital nurse because you're out there? So in some of the states in Australia, we have a primary clinical care manual. So we have a qualification which is just being reviewed at the moment called Remote and Isolated Practice Registered Nurse. And mm-hmm. there's a basically a guideline booklet which has um, health management protocols, which are basically standing orders. It goes through a presentation and assessment of the patient and then it has associated standing orders. So if you've got your RIPEN qualification, mm-hmm. you don't need to call the doctor. So you can't actually write a prescription as such, but you can follow the health management protocol and supply and administer mm-hmm. uh, medications for specific conditions according to that. That's almost like a paramedic would operate with standing orders for certain conditions, but for primary care. It's kind of like because the QAS offices here, which is Queensland Ambulance Services, mm-hmm. paramedics have standing orders. It's slightly different to a standing order, but that's the most similarity. Sure. So what kind of conditions do you have your protocols and stuff for that you can kind of just give treatments for without consulting a doctor for? So well, we're covered even in an emergency situation. It's covered that because sometimes we might not be able to get in touch with someone. So there's certain emergency situations where we can proceed and then contact the doctor. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, mostly Things that we wouldn't have to call the doctor about is like your ear infections, skin infections, sexually transmitted infections, sort of all of the the general uh, acute sort of presentations that you would see. Sure. Uh, and then anything a bit more complex, so like a, you know, if someone came in with chest pain, we can certainly start by giving you know your aspirin and and your analgesia and that. But then you would consult with a doctor 
about then deciding the management plan for them. It's almost almost like the nurse practitioner role. It's not quite, but it's you have all these things that you can do and you're obviously very, very well trained. It's just kind of like a step. It's like in between the regular nurse and the nurse practitioner role that we do here where you have all this kind of stuff that you can do and you're making all these treatment decisions based on clinical presentation and you're giving these meds and stuff, but you're just like not quite there. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to a nurse practitioner, but, but, but we can't like prescribe and so we wouldn't be, whereas I think the nurse practitioners would be managing chronic disease. Right. And, and prescribing the relevant medication, we we manage it in consultation with the doctor. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that almost half step there. But it's, it's interesting how other countries have developed roles, especially with nurses, to accommodate special populations. Because I think nurses are probably your most adaptable workforce in healthcare. You know, doctors are already doing their thing and they're really expensive, but nurses they're very educated and they're very adaptable and they're willing to kind of go anywhere. So it's, it's so interesting to see how different systems use nurses. Yeah. And we do have nurse practitioner roles now as well. So you can be a rural and remote nurse practitioner. However, I don't know how it works in the States, but here, if I did my NP qualification, I can't just go out and work as an MP unless there's a position for an NP. So I could get my NP qualification and go back to my job there, where, what I'm doing now, mm-hmm. but still not be able to work as an NP unless they decide to make that position an NP position, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So I, I would have to be hired as an NP to be working at the level of my license. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and because then the NP positions, well, they're probably paid about the same as what I M, but in a lot of other places, they would be slightly. It would be a slightly higher hourly rate, and so uh, there's not funding really. Mm. It's there's still a lot of work to go, but we're we're really progressing with some of the NP uh, positions in Australia. But we still got a long way to go as well. And I presume they all have to be working under a physician license to be operating. Yes, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. That's interesting. I <laughs> I would get down into the nitty gritty of it, but I'm sure people listening are just like, okay, whatever, move on, get to cool stories. So how yeah. do you have any cool, <laughs> st- you must have seen so many cool things working remotely in the outback of Australia. What anything comes to mind that's just really stuck out with you of like, what this is why you do it. This is why you go away from home for so long and, and treat people out there. So even like, for example, like even just in the last what month, yeah, we will have had MI, we had a, a road vehicle crash, we've had a child bouncing on the trampoline in the backyard and did a flip and with a query spinal injury had damaged all the ligaments in her neck. Oh, no. Because people work a lot in the stations, we do see um, sometimes people who, you know, because they work out on outside and and it's a big deal to take time off to go to the clinic. So I, I remember a young fellow that came in with a bit of hip pain, mm-hmm. walked in, he said, I had a fall off a, a, an ATV, mm-hmm. rolled it, oh. and my hips, you know, finished mustering for the day, but like I was complaining about pain. So my wife basically made me come in to see you just to, you know, because I'm complaining. <laughs> yeah. And he had a fractured pelvis. Oh, God. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, stable fracture, but yeah. So pit guys are pretty tough and pretty stoic too and sometimes people can present quite late with different things because they're busy or the distance to get in or they can't afford the time off work so or they think it's just nothing and it's not until it gets really bad that they realize it, it isn't nothing. Do you have an x-ray in your facility? We do you have to have a license so you have to do a special course and be licensed to operate the x-ray machine so currently I don't have that so we do have an x-ray machine and we can do when you're licensed uh, basic sort of like limbs, chest, sure, pretty much that's it. And specialty areas, they need to go out anyhow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have visiting outreach teams mm-hmm. come to, so uh, fairly limited, but uh, we might have like a physio come four times a year for a day. It's a big push, and we're trying to get more and more with telehealth. So we might do like um, endocrine, diabetes educator, follow up for diabetics can be done by telehealth. Um, rheumatology, uh, lots of appointments uh, more and more. They're moving towards trying to do that, which I think works well for some patients and doesn't work so well for others. So the people who would take, a you know, three days off work for them to go to an appointment, 
Mm-hmm. It works really well. But I know I was chatting with some, um, a mother, one of my Indigenous um, families, and she said she would rather speak to someone face-to-face for the first visit. And then once she knows them, then you could have a chat via the video conference. So sure. I think because it's a new technology, it works well for someone, needs a bit more work to put into place for others. Do you find that some people don't trust you coming into their community when you first meet them? Do you have to build rapport? Yeah, especially especially because I've done a lot of locum work and if you just coming in for a short period of time and especially in a community where people have had a high turnover mm-hmm. of staff, it can be quite hard and it takes a bit of time to get to know people. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, people sort of think, oh, like there's no point, no point going into detail with this person because they'll be gone again. Yeah. So it's really nice even being a local what I've been doing and I, I go back to a lot of the same communities mm-hmm. so even if you're not there permanently people get to know you over a period of time anyhow yeah that is my absolute favorite part of primary care is building those relationships and just seeing people and knowing about their lives and being able to just kind of ask them in more detail and, and when you walk in the room and you can kind of tell like oh we're not here just to talk about your science infection or something else like there's a there's a level of trust there and it's it's an honor to have that yeah. so I can see that it, it would be even harder to deal with if you're dealing with indigenous populations or people that are just rural and wouldn't necessarily trust you coming from the outside. Um, one of my colleagues, we were chatting the other day, you know, when you're trying to justify how busy you are to your supervisors and and things and I was saying like you know you can't record the old old man who comes into the clinic he hasn't really got anything wrong he just comes to say hello and you sit down and have a cup of coffee whilst you're having your cup of coffee all of this other stuff comes out that yeah like in your your visit just to check their blood pressure or whatever hadn't come out and it, it's so important like you know to drop in on people and just have a bit of a chat see what their house is like, Yeah, you know, when people come up for a visit, sit down, have a cup of coffee and a bit of a chat and, and you get to find out what's going on with their family and, and often a lot of stuff that you wouldn't get in a five-minute consult. Yeah, it's so true. It, we always, you know, we have these quality measures that we're already always trying to meet, you know, screen them for depression and screen them for fall risks. You know how you do that? You, you talk to them yep. and you say, oh, did you walk here? Did you come with your son? And they go, no, someone drove me because I've been having trouble getting up the stairs. Oh, have you been falling? And then like, not have you fallen three times in the last year? Like, please fill out the survey. Like, it's it's those conversations that give you the information and you learn about their health. It's not just a five minute visit like you talked about. It's not just a checkbox list. And once yeah. you've ticked all the boxes, then it's all done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because no one's going to tell you the truth when you just give them a bunch of boxes to check. Plus, they don't necessarily understand the questions like you were just saying. Like, you know, have you fallen? And they may have tri- tripped over half a dozen times, but because they haven't hurt themselves, they think, oh, no. Yeah, I didn't hit the ground. I didn't hit my head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't hurt myself, so that's not really a fall. <laughs> or I'm not depressed. I don't get depressed, but my wife died, and I don't sleep well anymore, and I don't eat anymore because no one cooks me dinner, and I don't eat with anyone. And you go, oh, well, you don't think you're depressed, but that's a clinical depression. So that's my job to talk about that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love I love sitting down and just talking, especially with my geriatric patients. Oh, the stories they have are amazing. Yours must have the same. Yeah, like they'll tell you about, you know, mustering back in the day, you know, being out overnight in the camps and having bulls run or story about family, like with some of the stories from some of the Indigenous people, just with uh, different, not even stories of family, but, you know, like different medicine, you know, like mm-hmm. using these plants to do this and, and this is what we'd do for this. I had someone come in to me the other day and they brought their child in with boils mm-hmm. and I said, oh, you know, what have you been doing so far for it? Or well, just been putting Vegemite on it, <laughs> you know, Vegemite is that black paste that's really famous in Australia (laughs) and it's really quite quite an acquired taste. (laughs) But it has obviously multiple uses, not just for putting on your toast with butter. (laughs) So it worked for a bit and then um, not so much. So then they came and saw me to have something else a little bit extra than Vegemite. (laughs) Are there any folk remedies that are really common there that you're like, these kind of work or maybe they don't work? Do people just keep doing this and you have to always debunk them? Not so much anymore, probably like more so maybe 15 years ago, you saw it a lot more, okay. but not so much 
now. They're, except there's still the odd ones with like apple cider vinegar. Oh, that's coming into trend here. Any pain oh, or, God. yeah, except for that when you've got epigastric pain and you take the apple cider vinegar <laughs> and it doesn't work. Yeah. And then we send you for three stents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not the pain that you can treat with apple cider vinegar. <laughs> so any any really challenging cases that you've had you know, recently or just over the, over the years that have just been really hard for you to either reach someone or just kind of hard because the resources weren't there to treat? Um, so especially like we're coming into our wet season now. So in these remote areas, quite often you'll have roads cut for periods of time. Mm-hmm. So I, like I remember last Christmas time, I had a call to go someone who'd had a fall from a roof, I think it was, out on their station that would have been on good weather, it would have been probably three hours for me to get there, but this wasn't good weather and it was two o'clock in the morning and flooding. Mm. So basically we just couldn't go and the guy spoke with the flying doctors overnight and he was stable, but they no one actually could get to him at all. Mm. So he had to wait till first light and they flew a helicopter in to go and get him. So sometimes there's just people that you just can't get to. Yeah. More often than not, it's more delays. So I like... Um, I might have someone with a trauma or something like that and I call up and and we know that they need to go out straight away but we've got limited assets, planes and things like that. So you might, uh, you know, like I had an unconscious woman one time that I had on my own for like six hours. Oh, my God. Before the retrieval could come, six hours once I got her back to the clinic because there just wasn't any availability of support at the time luckily that doesn't happen as much anymore probably the the longest if you've got a really really sick person probably the longest it would take is a few hours any idea why she was unconscious i think she'd had a massive cva oh gosh so family went to wake her up in the morning and she just didn't wake up and um so yeah i can't remember gcs was like about eight oh gosh and she was in a a remote a remote community that was outside my remote community So it took us about two hours to drive to get her and then two hours to drive back because there was no plane available. We didn't sort of sit on the side of the road. We just thought we'll head back to our clinic. Right. And at least then we've got a few more resources. And then by the time we got home, it was another six hours before there was a plane free to be able to come to get us. And this was in the um, time before LMAs. Okay. So basically just had to manage her airway with a OPA and my hands. <laughs> so for anyone that doesn't know, an LMA is a it's a, a type of breathing tube, but not the one. It's a, it's like an intermediary breathing tube. It's a pretty good one, but it's not the, I'm trying to explain the difference. Not the gold standard. It's not the gold standard one they use with like the laryngoscope. You kind of, it's a blind insertion tube and it's, they're great. You can just kind of pop them in. So was she apneic? Was she not breathing? No, she was breathing. She just would lose her airway positionally. So if I had her in the right position mm. and, you know, like just a little bit of support on her jaw, she was breathing fine, just that I couldn't leave her on her own because if I let her jaw go, she would um, just obstruct her airway, even with an OPA. I can't imagine just sitting there with, with someone for six hours and just holding their airway open, hoping a plane came. I, I can't imagine what that felt like. Yeah, it was... um. Challenging, and I think that's one of the hardest things. If working in a, on your own, we take we really take for granted when you're in somewhere, even with one other colleague, you really yeah. take for granted ability to be able to talk about things or say like, you know, th- this looks really strange. What do you think as well? Yeah. And so you can often sit and ruminate over things like, you know, did I get that right? Was that right? So you try to ring up and follow when you've sent people out, try to ring up and follow just to see, you know, whether you did the right thing, whether there's something you could do better next time in that situation. Yeah. And, and you know, like uh, even in a bigger centre, like, you know, you finish a, a shift where it's been a bit challenging and you'll sit down and have maybe a coffee and you can kind of do your debrief and things. And when you're on your own, it's a lot more a lot more challenging. Yeah. Even when you are like, I think I know what this is, but you just want that assurance that you're right or you're like, I know this is weird and this is not the right presentation of this, but am I missing something? You want the assurance that it's wrong. One other voice to just say, yeah, this is weird or yeah, no, I don't know either. Mm-hmm. That makes it so much better. Yeah, that's yeah. really... So how do you deal with all that stress? Um, Telephone, like, so <laughs> call a friend. Yeah, okay. There's some good services here too. So we have an organisation in Australia called 
Prana Plus, which is the Council of Remote Area Nurses Australia, which is one of a, a number of different organisations, but they, they focus on remote clinicians of whatever discipline. And they offer a free 24-hour-a-day bush support service, it's called. And so they have a, um, a trained psychologist on the line and you can just pick up and give them a call. might be that I've had a phone call from my family and had an argument with someone mm-hmm. and that's upset me could be that there's been challenges with colleagues or people at work or in the community or it could just be that I just had a really big run of some big stuff and my brain I just need to talk to someone to yeah to deal with it so they provide really good support so you can ring them anytime um, and we have between ourselves networks you know with other dons Don is Director of Nursing, which is just the title of the position mm-hmm. in these communities that I'm working in. So we'll, at the end of a busy week, like give each other a call. And that's actually the lunch that I'm going to today is with three other colleagues who work in similar areas. We're all catching up today for a little bit of a Christmas catch up. Oh, good. We all go back to work. So, I mean, you have all this stress, but also having the autonomy must be really rewarding when you get to really make a difference for someone. Have there been moments where you have saved someone where you you've been the right person at the right moment or just kind of this this is why these nurses exist in these rural communities oh probably this time of the year last year so I I was um at home about it was about 10 o'clock in the evening and we were going to be having a little Christmas party with our uh, team in the clinic so I was making rumbles you know little chocolate balls with coconut so I just finished <laughs> doing my last one and the phone rings and it was basically a tasking for a job and they said there's been a two vehicle motor vehicle crash about 10 k's out of town I can't really tell you how many people are involved the only thing we do know is there's an arm on the road I'm like what oh gosh okay you're like an arm like, as in belonging to what anyhow so yes that's the only information that we can give you so I thought okay so whilst I was waiting for my uh, ambulance driver to come in I was just prepping some stuff that I thought I would need in this situation and we get out there and there was it was a tourist had fallen asleep at the wheel and slammed into another car and this other guy had a lot of equipment on the back of his car moving it from one town to another Mm -hmm. and he had a shovel and it was totally looked perfectly tied little shovel and obviously just this guy had his arm out the window and as he spun around it's just clipped it on the shovel and taken it off oh my god kind of middle of his upper arm and then run off into a ditch into a tree and what I find amazing though too is like you know in the cities if that sort of thing happened people would be stopping and looking and pointing yeah whereas there was a some locals drove past and they stopped so by the time I got there someone had ripped off their belt and tied it on this guy's arm (laughs) and as I was just trying to assess this guy and have a look they come up and you know do you want us to sort the car and turn the engine off and and I'm like oh yeah that'd be great so people really really practical so even if you haven't got medically trained people you've got people with a lot of common sense and just to figure out to do stuff yeah people that want to help and so this guy anyhow we managed to get him back he we couldn't save the arm because it was too too damaged but he was retrieved and had his arm um finalized Mm -hmm. and then um it was really nice actually a couple of days later I got a a call from the flying doctors and they said oh you know we're just ringing we're sending a letter because you guys did an amazing job and they wrote a letter saying you know like if it wasn't for our team between the police and the emergency service people and our clinic staff he probably wouldn't have survived so it was nice to be able to know he's able to go home to see his family for Christmas yeah (laughs) That's so sweet. I'm going to cry listening to that story. <laughs> oh, and it was, yeah, it was, it was um, a really good, like with such limited resources, like the guy was entrapped in the car. So we had to coordinate the team and, and it's what makes it hard like for us nurses is because a lot of the nurses who work bus have not been trained as EMTs or any of that sort of thing. So different people have different skills in the pre-hospital environment. And as you're aware with your past experience, it's not the same as having someone already neatly packaged arriving into your ED, no matter how sick they are. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So when you're trying to crawl through the bushes in the middle of the night and you've got, you know, the car smashed and the doors jammed so and you've got a team of people working with you who haven't been trained in doing any of that. So not only am I trying to look after the patient but I'm trying to work out which is going to be the best way to extricate this guy out of the car. Yeah. Then I'm also trying to make sure all of the bystanders that are helping are safe. So I'm like, you know, everyone put gloves on. 
put some towels down over this broken glass. You know, yeah. like there's quite a lot of um, stuff that you have to do, again, that you take for granted when you're in a hospital situation. Yeah, I mean, firefighters go to a lot of training to do these kinds of extrications. And for bystanders and untrained professionals to be doing it, it's very, very dangerous. There's so much electrical um, in cars and glass, like you said, it's gas lines. It's- yeah, you know, even being aware that airbags, have they gone off or do you need to, there's lots of stuff, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. There is. Wow. So then we come back. So every every basically, because you do so much different stuff, then you come back and you you read up on on different things to sort of say like, oh, this is what I did in this situation, but could I have done it better? And so you, then you'll go and like Google different topics and speak to colleagues and or speak to colleagues that you know have been in a similar situation and what did you do? And and then you also have to get in touch with our line managers and things and say we actually really need different equipment. Mm-hmm. So like you know we really want to have a tourniquet a cat in each of our kits because we're so far away from everyone and we really need to be able to use our hands. Yeah. So like that was the other benefit from that. I had actually been asking for some tourniquets for our retrieval kits and we hadn't kind of got them yet. And people, you know, like sometimes if there hasn't been a case like that, people have a low index of suspicion to think that it might happen. Right. So it was a thing I was working towards. After we had this guy with the amputated arm, we now have tourniquets in all of our retrieval kits because yeah it does happen out there (laughs) yeah of course yeah you do need them is there any uh, equipment that you're like I really want this now that they're still kind of giving you a hard time about or just haven't put high on the priority list um what we're what we're hoping to do and we'll probably work with our hospital auxiliary to fundraise for it as well and just point of care testing for chronic disease you know that I can't remember the name of the machine but you know you can do a HbA1c to check glucose in people with diabetes Mm -hmm. you can check um, kidney function and cholesterol and all of those sort of things oh yeah yeah yeah. without because we can only send pathology out one day a week when the doctor plane comes we pack up so we do any of our fasting blood any blood tests on that day and send it back out because we don't have any transport to be able to send it out any other day of the week so if we had a point of care testing then we can come in and do a full health check on someone and complete it at that time without having to get people back and forth do you have a point of care INR machines yeah, we've got iStats, yeah. so we can do INR, troponin, Good. basic chemistry. Yeah. Is there anything that you have now that you're like, I couldn't live without this? I use this all the time. <laughs> um, probably the iStat a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, because we've got lots of cardiac patients on warfarin and things like that. Mm. And they prefer to use the warfarin still in a lot of cases because, you know, the newer anticoagulants don't have reversal so if you're somewhere really really remote with limited resources probably not the ideal there's a lot more risks and benefits to weigh up and deciding to use those kind of drugs yeah warfarin's cheaper too than things like eloquis and xarelto um which i guess in a nationalized health system is not as big of a concern but for us we're prescribing these things because we say oh your insurance won't cover xarelto insurance will only cover warfarin for you as opposed to what's actually best for so do you guys have um do the insurance actually dictate how like your treatment plan kind of thing then oh yes yeah so if i want a medication for a patient um, insurance very often will say, no, we don't. I'm actually going through this right now with a patient. So she's been stable on a med for, oh, five years. And they say, we're not going to cover this anymore. Here are these three options. And she's tried one. She tried one before and she had failed it. And so now we're trying the other two. And she's failed one. So we're on to number four. And I don't know that she'll be successful on this last one. And what I did actually is there's this company called um, goodrx.com, which is just coupons. And so it may be cheaper for her to pay out of pocket for this medication, the original medication, and then have to deal with the side effects of going on a bad medication for her. Um, she's elderly. So yeah, insurance dictates my treatment plans all the time because they will refuse to pay for medications that I deem to be beneficial or appropriate or the most appropriate. Oh, wow. At least we don't have that. Yeah. Yeah, it's infuriating. <laughs> or a patient will be stable on a medication. They'll go, well, you haven't done a trial off of it in a long time. We're not going to cover it unless you prove to me that you you do a trial of something else. And then their condition becomes unstable again. And they go through the hell of side effects. And they go through it's not being well controlled. And we just jump through these hoops for insurance companies to go, yep, that cheaper med sucks. Doesn't work for my patient. And I knew that because that was my professional opinion. And now we have to go back on it. So Yeah, it must be... um. 
I, I, wor- I worked on some cruise ships in the States. Oh, yeah. Um, briefly. <laughs> and um, so I got just a glimpse at some, but we obviously didn't have to be doing long-term care for people. So we didn't have those kind of challenges with it. But I know even just speaking with people about insurance or not having insurance or whatever, it was really interesting, the differences. Yeah, I uh, insurance is just it's something that just drives me insane because you know, I have patients that are uncontrolled diabetics and they could be well controlled with these like newer diabetes medications, the oral hypoglycemics, but their insurance will just not pay for them. They'll only pay for the really bad old ones. And there's so many side effects. There's so many problems with these medications. They're so dangerous. And it's all I have to give them that and insulin. And it's like, why are we giving them dangerous meds? That's not why I'm treating people. And then there's other patients that just don't have health insurance. I was going to say, the challenges that we have then in remote are are not like that. Ours are just purely from not having access to be able to get the, like it can take quite a long time to, to get people to get a diagnosis and that because by the time you see them, then you might have to get them back in a week to get their bloods because you can't do them before then. Then once you get those back, they help you make, then you need to send them out for an appointment. And depending on the urgency of the situation, that can take a long time. And plus then, you know, there's a lot of travel involved for them to get backward and forward. So it can take quite a long time and quite costly for the patients just with having to leave their town and work for extended periods of time during all of that process. Yeah. We have um, a lot of uh, doctors who might not, like in the regional centres, in the referral centres, who don't really understand the distance. So people will get discharged and come back and then you'll get a call. By the way, they just need to have an echo and this and this and this, all sorts of, you know, amazing tests done. Right. Can you arrange it? I'm like, well, no, they need to come back to where you are to do all of that. So often we have to do lots of education when the doctors change over with new doctors to make them appreciate how far it is. So I had, I even had a young family, like it's their first baby. They're both around 20 mm. and baby is not meeting, not meeting some milestones. So we wanted to send her to a pediatrician for investigation to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they went out, had their first appointment. And the day that they got home out to our community, they got a phone call saying, oh, by the way, you need to come and have an MRI and and this done and you need to be here by three o'clock tomorrow afternoon. So they came up to the clinic all distressed. Yeah. They didn't really know what was going on and then they've got to get away from work again, sort out like a, a young baby and all of that to get back when it's a seven hour drive. Yeah. So I rang the next morning and said to the clinic, like, I think they're going to be late. They're like, well, they need to be here by this time. And I said, well, they're on their way, but they can only get there when they get there. I'm just letting you know if they're not on time, it's not that they're not coming. Yeah. They just may be delays in the road. So there's lots of things like that. And that's also like a role of ours to try try and advocate for patients and to try and facilitate coordination of all of this sort of stuff to lower this happening, the chance of this happening Yeah, when we can. I think that's very much the role of the nurse to advocate your pa- for your patients, regardless of your level of nursing, regardless of the barriers to health. There's always barriers to healthcare, whether yours are distance, minor insurance. It's every health system has barriers. That's right. It's just, they're very different. <laughs> yeah, it's just a matter of knowing what yours are for the population that you're working with. Yes, and we get very creative with overcoming them. <laughs> No, you know, the old saying, sometimes it's easier to seek forgiveness than to ask for permission. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Yeah. I can't imagine being, trying to deal with all this stuff while you're being sick. Like this is my job and this is confusing, you know? So I, every time I have the opportunity to be like, nope, this is how we should do it. Like, let me find a coupon for you or let me send you this clinic this radiology place because they're cheaper if you're paying out of pocket or something like there's this resource for you let's let's try and you know use it as much as we can that's my job that's what I'm supposed to do to make you healthier and you know you're doing the same thing for your patients yeah and at the end of the day then it's just really nice when you see people get sorted and it hasn't been too traumatic a process you know when you see it all go smoothly and and then people get sorted and managed and they understand the treatment plan and all of that, then it's nice at the end of the day to be able to, to to know that you had a hand in helping get them there. 
Yeah. It's, I think, why some people kind of have been really enjoying the podcast because the stories of medicine are different around the world, but they're kind of all the same. The goal of helping people is all the same. doesn't matter where we are. We're just kind of doing it a little bit differently, but it's just such a universal desire and a universal story of just trying to make people's lives better. We're just doing it in a different way. Yeah, exactly. And different circumstances. Yeah. You know, the other thing that we do get occasionally in our clinics in remote areas is animals. Yeah. So the dogs that have been bitten by a snake or a cat that's got an obstructed labour, a kangaroo that was hit by a car. <laughs> so sometimes we have to pull out a few veterinary skills as well. Really? <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you do any training for that or did you kind of just figure it out as you go? Figure it out as you go and sometimes then you maybe have teed up with a vet somewhere that you can call and ask for advice on how to manage things. That's amazing. Have you saved a kangaroo? Um, yeah. So sometimes you might have a dial-a-vet friend or something like that that you can call and ask for advice. And some places have some expired stock that hasn't been sent back yet of medicines that might be used for animals. So, you know, you might have some penicillin that's expired last month. Mm-hmm. So get it, uh, ring up the vet and just check, you know, what's the dose for this kind of injury on this kind of animal and which is the best antibiotic to use because, you know, it's not – you can't just use the same things as humans right. with animals. Right. So, yeah, just another interesting challenge that we have occasionally. That's funny you mentioned that because as an army medic, we are expected to treat military working dogs on the front lines. And ah, yep. so the military working dogs, if they get injured, they have rank. They are treat. They are service members. Their, their rank is actually above that of their handler. So we were trained to save a dog's life and the dogs would get treated in our caches, the combat support hospitals or um, whatever level oh, hospitals. Yeah. yeah. And they would get evac just like soldiers and get treated. Yeah. Oh, cool. Not anything I ever actually have done or did in my civilian life, but it was just kind of a, a cool idea that, you know, Staff Sergeant Rex would <laughs> get treated too. Is that the rank that they are? So the rank is always one above the handler. Ah, interesting. Yeah, the U.S. military uh, takes their working dogs very seriously, as they should. They are part of the team and they're an important part of the team, so why not? And it's the same in, in remote areas. You know, like people have their pet. Um, it's part of their family too. There's no vet services, so you have to do what you can do. Yeah. So I have to ask the most American question ever. Have you treated a kangaroo? Yeah, I had. Well, sort of. This would have been about 25 years ago. And there was a bunch of 20-somethings in their combi van doing a bit of a tour around the countryside. And I just closed up the clinic and these people come to the door and they've got something in a towel that I couldn't see. And it was a little wallaby, which is a small kangaroo, mm-hmm. um, that they'd hit in the car. Oh, and no. they were all very, very upset. They're like, you know, like we feel really bad because, you know, it didn't just jump out in front of us. It was following its path and we came into its path and we hit it. So you've got to do something for it. And I don't, I think it had, must have been injured before from memory. Like, so it had something wrong with its eyes and I think it was blind. Oh. So there was a limit on what I could do anyhow, but I knew someone in town who had a, a couple of other kangaroos that had been, that she was looking after that were now basically not able to go anywhere else. And so they stayed with her. So I gave her a call and she took this little one in and kept it because I really couldn't keep a kangaroo in the clinic because they're um <laughs> they're big and they're strong and they're really silly. Like so even out in Queen, I think I sent you a couple of photos with the kangaroos. So if I forget to close the front gate that cars can drive in in the evening, then the kangaroos will come in overnight to eat the grass and to try and eat my veggie garden and all that sort of thing. And if you try and chase them out, because it's like wire fence, so you and I can see it. They've jumped over one of them to get into the juicy grass anyhow, mm-hmm. but they freak out. So as soon as as soon as you like maybe try to chase them out of the yard, they just freak and they'll just go running and they just keep running into the fence. <laughs> so the first time it happened, well, and they, they can get caught in the fence and really oh. do themselves some damage. Yeah. So now I've learnt that that's not how you get them out. So I just go around if they've managed to get in for whatever reason. I go around in the morning and just open every gate and leave it open so that then when they panic and go to run out, at least there's a few holes, different options for them to get out. Yeah. And because when you're driving along the road to like kangaroos, like they're always hiding just on the corner of the road. And as you see them, like you always have to slow down for them because they'll stop, they'll turn around, they'll look you in the eye and you think, great, you can see a big metal box coming towards you. You're going to run the other way. But no, they'll hop mm-hmm. straight out to the middle of the road, turn and look at you or jump straight and cross 
and they're solid muscle. So if you hit a roo, uh, it's a cause of quite a number of really nasty accidents in the bush. Mm. I can imagine you would not want one in the clinic. Have you? Do you have the um, phrase "bull in a china shop" there? Yep. Yes, it would be exactly like that. <laughs> Wallaby in a clinic. <laughs> <laughs> and even at night when I've left the gate open so the other night I was sitting there and I was trying to work out I thought someone must have been in the in the yard but you hear this like <laughs> and it's the kangaroos hopping around <laughs> after a while like going from corner to corner to go and feast but because it's been so hot like um until just now because we've had the cyclone come through but there hadn't been any rain it was like super super hot heat wave hot so all the animals would just any time anywhere that there was just a little bit of moisture, they'd all congregate mm. in the afternoon. So I used to put the sprinkler out of the fence just to water around the outside the fence so that they could uh, get wet. And a lot of the locals too said that they put containers out on the other side of their fence for the animals to be able to come up and, and get a drink. <laughs> and the birds the other morning, I was sitting out in my backyard having a coffee before I started work and the sprinkler was on and these birds just flew down and they were just like so happy they must have just been hot and bothered so he's under the sprinkler flapping his wings and singing a song as if to say like you know seeing as you've done this for me this is what I'm doing for you I'm putting on a little show it was amazing so cute <laughs> that sounds beautiful as I'm sitting here wrapped in a blanket freezing in December in DC <laughs> so cold oh yeah they no, were the opposite extremes I think was it the other night that we were trying to talk and it was 45 degrees celsius for me and 45 degrees fahrenheit for you yes yes exactly so 113 fahrenheit for you and 45 for me <laughs> yeah well, thank you so much, Sonia, for coming on. I want to say thank you to uh, Peter Hopkins for doing our intro music. Please subscribe wherever you are listening to podcasts. Leave us some reviews. Thank you guys so much for listening. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. I love hearing from everyone, like I keep saying. I'm going to keep trying to post some more cases on the Facebook group. Uh, for people that are interested in just some interesting things that I see throughout my week and we can kind of talk about them and a little bit of education, but also have some fun. So the Facebook group is Antidote Stories in Medicine and the Instagram is Antidotes Podcast. Twitter is Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP and you can always reach out to me again at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys again. Have a great week. Have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, whatever holiday you celebrate. I will see you next week. Bye.